kind of a short reading, maybe shocking. Maybe you expect us to go through at least the first nine or so verses there. But as we start kind of longer books, we, we usually like to start with an introduction to the book, just to frame it, especially in its not only literal context of where it's placing in the Bible, but historical context. It helps us just kind of grasp how to look at this book in a manner that would be uh, more accurate instead of just ripping it out of context, as well as helpful for us to see that what God is doing in time, in history, really happened. These are not written in ways that are presented to us as myth, as different uh, distant ideas, or just supposed to be moral encouragements. These are literal things that God has guided in and worked through throughout history, and so uh, it is helpful for us to pause and look at books in this kind of way carefully and then spend some time looking and setting up the context. But as we're kind of getting into this book, I want, I want us to think, uh, kind of set this up, because maybe even the first couple of verses seems strange or foreign, or maybe the characters don't even seem familiar to you. You don't remember the context of what's going on. But as we're thinking about that, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but Disney movies, to kind of shift gears for a second, I don't know if you've ever noticed, Disney movies almost always, or regularly at least do, they start with death. Have you thought about that? Have you noticed that as happy as they are, as amazing as they are, almost every significant emotional Disney movie starts and incorporates death, often very early on in the story, and usually it's the death of a parent. Think about this. In Frozen, Elsa and Anna's parents die in a shipwreck very early on in the movie, right? So I'm going to give some spoilers. Hopefully these are old enough Disney movies that I'm not ruining, and there's not too many kids under 10 here, so I'm not destroying this you know, uh, movie for any kid here. But this is a really old one, so if you haven't seen it yet, uh, this is one of my favorites as a kid, Sword in the Stone, right? King Arthur, his parents die early on. Of course, Bambi, right? Bam, that's, a, that's a super traumatizing movie, right? And since my dad is an avid deer hunter, I used to make fun of him all the time with this movie. My, even Jeanette once, uh, you know, she wanted to give my dad a gift, and so she bought this ridiculous, I forget what they call them, but like, you know how those puzzles with like, there's pictures in every single puzzle, and then like the smaller pictures make up a bigger picture too. It's not like a normal puzzle. I mean, it sounds like I'm just describing a normal puzzle, but like, it's like a picture within pictures. It's a very difficult kind of puzzle to put together. It's like a thousand pieces, and then it was just Bambi and Bambi's mom, and we gave it to my dad as a joke, and it's hanging up in my kid's room, but they haven't, I don't think they've seen Bambi yet, so we'll shock them later. But you watch Nemo, right? Very early on, mom is killed, Coral. Who can forget? And this is not early on, but throughout the middle of the movie, Lion King, Mufasa, and that terrible betrayal. Up, the movie Up, oh man, that just, that movie just makes me cry. You just watch the first five minutes of it and it just wrecks you, right? And that's because Disney understands a very good part of storytelling is to compel emotions. Not just to understand something, but to compel emotions and to tap into the strongest emotions children can feel is the loss of family. And that's true, not just children, that's true of us. And so they regularly tap into this part of storytelling. And it's a death that starts the book of Joshua. And in order for us to understand this book and what's coming into it, we have to understand that the funeral, funeral that it starts with is so significant and the emotions that comes with it. I mean, this 
This hurts significantly for the reader, for the people of God. Moses has died. The questions that linger in their minds, the emotions that rise up, what will happen to Israel? Will God keep all of these promises that he made, all the way starting with Genesis 3.15, all the way back to Genesis 12? And Will he keep all of these promises of making his people into a great nation, of blessing them, that they will through them be blessing to all the earth? Will he promise to have someone save them who will eventually reverse the curse of Genesis 3? And as we start Joshua today, this, this emotion has to be there as we're looking at this book. Every, we tend to look at Joshua. Maybe if you're only familiar with Joshua, you only know Joshua 1. Right? Be strong, be bold and courageous. And you know Joshua 24, right? As for me and my house. That's probably the only time you see Joshua and it's printed on some kind of cheesy Christian thing and it's posted in someone's house. That's the only time you'll see Joshua ever taught or referred to is those sections in Joshua 1 and Joshua 24. But this, this is coming after this significant, historical, emotional moment. And it's important for us to pause and think about this and think about the characters as we're beginning to look at this book. One thing to note, and I only learned this when I was studying the book of Joshua in seminary, and it really stuck with me for a very long time because it really helped me understand this book. Joshua is what is in the Old Testament what the Acts is to the new. And maybe more of us are familiar with the book of Acts, and that's helpful. Acts, if you know the New Testament, is kind of this unpacking of everything that comes afterwards from the Gospels. And it's the growth and explosion and expansion of the early church. It's a transitional moment in God's people's history, and it records all those unique moments in history and how God is working through the church. In a similar kind of way, Joshua is that kind of transitional bridge book. God has been working through his people from Exodus to Deuteronomy, and now they're beginning to get out of this kind of place. They've only primarily been in one place after being wandering. They were mainly in Sinai, and now it's like, what's going to happen to his people? It's that transitional book. It's setting up what God is doing through his people. And what I want to do to kind of set us up to understand this book is look at three of the main characters in these first two verses and use that to kind of give us context and understanding that will help us look at the book for the remainder of our time in it. I want to look at first character, Moses. Look at verse 1 with me again. After death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. The first person in the book of Joshua that we're introduced to is not Joshua. It's Moses which is surprising to a book that's not named after him, but it's a book that is transitional, as I just mentioned. Moses has been the main character from Exodus to Deuteronomy, the main significant human leader. And Moses' greatness was something we don't grasp unless you sit with Jewish history and you look very deeply from Exodus to Deuteronomy. And he not, we know that he led his people out of Egypt, he stepped into the gap, if you remember, in Exodus 32 to 34, that he was someone who, the only one, when the people of God were at the brink of breaking their covenant with God, at the brink of extinction, one man stood in the gap and stopped them from being wiped off from the face of the earth. 
Moses uniquely received revelation from God. He was a leader. And the longer you get away from Moses, the more significant and the more grand he seems. So this is a huge leader. Look how Moses is referred to in the last sections of Deuteronomy. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Think about significant people who've died that emotionally affect a nation or a world. I was a child when this happened, but I remember how significant the death of Princess Diana was to many people, as you saw many, many people weeping and grieving and being wrecked. I remember right before the pandemic, although the pandemic was just, I feel like it's never ending at this point, but Kobe Bryant's death and how much it affected so many people who were sports fans, even non-sports fans. If you're into Star Wars, the death of Carrie Fisher and how that rippled through that community. Imagine even more so how the death of Moses, this significant leader, would affect his people. And this is how Joshua begins. Moses is dead. And it's amazing that how God is so clear and simple. Moses has died. You should wait and weep. No, get up and go into the land. Moses died. But God's plan doesn't. That's one of the things you see at this very beginning. Moses, who dominated the last four books of the Bible, he's dead. And as significant as he is, as important as he was in God's plan in history, this is meant to show us in the brevity the kingdom of God is never ultimately dependent on one person, even if that person is very significant. It is, the kingdom of God is led by great men and women, but it is never contingent upon them. It is contingent upon the greatness of our God. However gifted, however amazing a leader is, their life always ends with a funeral. Everyone does. That's what Moses' death is teaching us in the very beginning of this book. <laughs> Leadership is a significant theme in this book. It's a significant theme throughout Scripture and the church. God cares about his leaders. Primarily, God cares about their character and heart, as we'll see throughout this book. Secondarily, he cares about their willingness. Actually, last, he cares about their ability, because their ability matters nothing to a powerful, all-powerful God. And I think this is something, just briefly, some implications from Moses' funeral, his, his death at the beginning of this book. For those who are leaders, first, and many of you are leaders in different capacities, in your workplace, in your school, in your family, in your church, in your small group, Moses' funeral reminds us that all leaders, even uniquely gifted leaders like Moses, are all replaceable. We're all dispensable in a sense. And that may seem kind of sad and kind of morbid to think about that, but it's also very freeing to think about that. See, there's a subtle lie, I think, that we end up believing the longer you are in positions of leadership, whatever leadership you're in, family, work, school. The subtle lie that you begin to believe that no one can do what I do. 
This place would completely fall apart if I wasn't to show up tomorrow. And that needs to be fought against. Moses died. It doesn't mean that people don't honor him and don't recognize his significance, but the kingdom of God moves on. All of us, unless Jesus comes back, will see a funeral. And it is humbly acknowledging this reality instead of distracting us from this potential reality that godly leadership can begin to flourish from our lives. God does not need me. But he graciously allows me this privilege. It's a real important truth for me. I was beginning to dwell on this a lot, thinking about this as a pastor. Sunset Church, I need to press this into my heart, into my mind, into my life. Sunset Church does not need me. God graciously gives me this honor by allowing me to shepherd his sheep. But Sunset Church is God's. And if the kingdom of God is here, he is at work. And then we all believe this when we say it out loud. But do you believe it in the quiet of your heart? Moses has died. His kingdom continues to grow. Sunset Church is my family, as important as I am, if it is God's, God will care and continue to be there to grow my family, care for my family. My workplace, whatever place you're expressing your leadership, do you understand, do you believe, do you trust that if it is within God's hands, God will continue to do what his plan is, especially in light of his kingdom there? For those of us who are under leaders, and all of us, if we're leaders or not, it doesn't matter, we're still under someone, are you prepared, though, for those moments for when Moses dies? When the leader that's been there for a long time is potentially gone? Are you prepared to, to continue to do the kingdom work of God? Whether that person dies or moves on or something happens in the midst of a pandemic, we've seen lots of transitions. People moving away physically. People now just wandering away spiritually. People no longer, I, I know people in our church who say they're part of our church, but I haven't seen them for two years. I don't know. Are they part of our church or not? Right? I don't know. But in the, that caused a gap somewhere. As someone, if you're under that person, are you ready for that moment when Moses is gone and you may be called to rise up and lead? I was praying and grieving this past week. A pastor I knew at, now it's called Authentic Church San Francisco, but it was called Temple Baptist, next to Stonestown, that one church that's kind of there, their pastor a week ago was killed in a biking accident, sadly. Reached out to the church, praying for them and their family, but as I was praying for them, I was hooking through this book, it was just timely. I was just like, God, pray that in the significant, he was there for like 20-something years, very significant time of shepherding and caring and loving his people, significant gap, and he will have a funeral and I'm praying that his legacy would live on and his leadership would flourish through the people who are there, who recognize now that as important as Pastor Greg was, and we want to honor his life, we want to grieve, we're still grieving. The kingdom of God, if it is here, does not stop. That's what we learn when we see Moses has died. You had to get that emotion and the fear and the, the loss and the grieving that all that is coming to when you start this book. The second person we're introduced to in this book, second human character at least, is Joshua. Look again at the beginning. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, 
the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. I, li- I like how even, just think about this, the person talking here is Yahweh, and he has to, it's not like Joshua needs a reminder that Moses is dead. He's probably been weeping. He's probably been grieving. He's probably worried. He's probably anxious. He doesn't really need a reminder of the facts. He needs a reminder for his heart and his faith. Moses is dead. He doesn't need a reminder of the truth of that, but the drawing to the Lord. Will you trust me? But who is Joshua? Most of us probably are a little less familiar with Joshua than we are Moses. It's important to look at a few of the key moments of Joshua's life that are introduced to as we're looking at this book. The very first time you see Joshua ever mentioned in the Bible is Exodus chapter 17. I want to read a few verses there with us. Verses 8 to 10 and verse 13, we're introduced to Joshua for the first time. and It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Then, so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Then end of the war. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So the very first time he was introduced to this person, to the name of Joshua, is when he's a general of the army of Israel. And it's, it's a lesson here that Joshua learns at the very first battle that he's supposed to lead. As much as he's supposed to fight, and yes, he is supposed to fight, he learns in this lesson that the only person with the power to help them actually win the battle is the Lord. As Moses, whenever he holds up the staff, they're winning, and whenever his arms come down, they're losing that it's not some kind of magic trick. Joshua is learning. Moses is learning. The people of God are learning there. God is actually the one to fight. They only win when the power of the Lord is behind them. It doesn't actually matter if they have no power, as we're going to see throughout the book of Joshua, because it is God's power that wins. The second time we're introduced to Joshua is at Mount Sinai and the golden calf and Exodus. And we see this sad occurrence here. He's invited, one of the, the only other person to see the glory of God besides Moses is Joshua. And I love the intimacy of that story. If you look at Exodus 24, you see that the people of God, some of the key leaders, when they went up on the mountain to, to see the Lord, one of the things that they did was eat. We just did a sermon a couple weeks ago on fasting, actually this last week, right, on fasting, food, is being crucial to who we are and to a relationship with God. And it's something we need to understand as a spiritual practice. It's a place for feasting as well as fasting. And it's amazing that some of the most significant moments of the people of God with God happen around food. Sinai, they're eating. You know, after the resurrection, one of the first things Jesus does with his disciples is what? With John, is eat fish. There's such an amazing thing, communion and Passover, that it reflects, surrounds food. Whole person is presented to God. That's a small tangent, but that's significant that Joshua got to experience this. He got to see that when you are with God, you are bringing your whole person. This is not a, a something that you bring only your mind to or only bring some emotions to. This is you're bringing your body to it. You're bringing your whole self. 
significant to this moment where Joshua uh, is included in this intimacy with the Lord on the mountain is when they're coming down from the mountain. Exodus 32. If you're familiar with that story, it's a very terrible time in God's people's history. They began to worry that Moses and Joshua were gone for a long time and they began to, to think, well, we should do something about this. We can maybe usher in Yahweh's presence and get him to lead us. And they, what do they do? They don't worship him the way that God calls them to. He, they begin to draw practices from where they just left and they begin to make a golden calf. Exodus 32, 17 to 18. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory it is sound, or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Well, certainly singing is better than war. But when Joshua and Moses, when they get down, what do they discover? Joshua learns a very important lesson here. War, external enemies, like in Exodus 17 with Amalek, they aren't the greatest evil that will plague God's people. The greatest evil that will always plague God's people is their own rebellion. It's themselves. You can put it cheesily, but you can take someone out of Egypt, but it's very difficult to take the Egypt out of them. And that's what they're learning. I think it's an important lesson for us because this is the thing that plagues the church. And I think this is where we get it wrong. I think a lot of times today we're looking for someone to blame or looking for some enemy to fight against in the church or Christian leaders or people talking about things. We always talk about someone out there. There's a political figure that we need to fight against. There's a, there's a party that we need to fight against. There's a particular writer or author or leader. There's someone bad out there. And it's not to dismiss that there are things out there from the church that ought to get, get our attention and we ought to pay close attention to. But I think what ends up happening, Satan ends up using this and we get distracted from the fact that when you come down from the mountain, we will build a golden calf. That the greatest, the greatest threat to the church is never outside of it. It is always inside of it. Satan doesn't need to do any external fighting against us if we do it to ourselves, if we turn from the Lord ourselves. And so maybe you need to, this is something corrective or helpful to you. Maybe you're someone who's drawn to, to looking, especially in the midst of a pandemic. And you, I don't know if you realize this, you are being discipled all the time by whatever you consume, whatever you read, whatever you watch. And if you've been watching a ton of anything in terms of news and media consumption and you're going to be coming politicized in any particular direction and the enemy is this person or that company or this group and that's what you're constantly worried about and you're driven by this. It's not that that may be wrong per se, but are you now distracted from the fact that the, the battle that actually God wants us to pay close attention to is the one that's raging in your own heart? That's raging inside our church. The next time we're introduced to Joshua is Numbers chapter 13, maybe the most famous occurrence with Joshua. This is that story where 12 spies or 12 scouts are sent out to, to kind of survey the promised land, to figure out if it's good, if they could get in there, just get some information. And it's here that we learn that Joshua actually gets his name Joshua. That wasn't his name. Moses changed it. Joshua, uh, Numbers chapter 13, verse 16 and these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Hoshea, 
similar to Hosea, uh, just different spelling. It means he saves. But Moses changes his name, I think is an important lesson. Joshua means Jehovah, the Lord saves. It's not going to be Joshua that saves. He's trying to tell him by his very name, God will always be the one to save. It's important that even Jesus' name, which is the Greek version of Joshua, means God saves. Now, in this account, ten spies come back, and these scouts report, man, the people who are there are too strong. They have weapons that are far more advanced than us. We, we need to back up. And God said this, but I don't know. Maybe we need to you know, send him an email and make sure he didn't get the, the land coordinates in, you know, wrong. Or you know, maybe he forgot to give us some advanced weaponry. I, I don't know. We can't do this. But Joshua and Caleb, look what they say. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. They're, they're honest. They're, they're, they're not trying to pretend as if something is not true. And the cities are fortified and very large. They built huge walls. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the Melachites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along with the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Joshua and Caleb, we continue to read. Don't read for us here. But you see that they're rebuking the people. These ten spies are worried. They're bringing all, and all the people cry and weep, and they're worried. Remember, they're still at Sinai at this point. And God judges those ten with a plague, and they die. And then he judges those people who are there who rebel against God, that they will never enter the promised land. And then they additionally wander for 38 years. So they're 40 years from Egypt before they enter the promised land. What we learn about this occurrence and what Joshua is participating in, I think it's significant. And you could spend a whole sermon on the implications of what, what happens here in Numbers 13. But here's a couple of things I've been dwelling on this week. The majority report one. I think this is an important reminder to us. Living in a democracy, we are used to working out on the basis of majority. And that's a good way in some ways to run a society, a government. It tries to serve the best uh, wide understanding. There's no perfect way of leading any particular place. I'm not speaking ill of democracy. But it does not mean, it never means that the majority is always right. You see this time and time and time again in Scripture. This is one of the most significant ones. The majority, 10 out of 12, they said, we can't go. And they were wrong. This is important. I think we need to understand this. God's will will not always be played out in the majority of the church. It won't be. God's will sometimes will be played out in the few who actually trust the Lord in his word. And it's hard to discern that at times. But we should not confuse our governing country that we live in and the way that we run our government is automatically true of how we should lead our church, how we should decide, how we should pursue things that God calls us to. It will not always seem that way very clearly to the obvious majority. That's a hard thing to pause and consider, but I think this is where we begin to see 
unbiblical syncretism of our faith in this particular country. We begin to think that democracy is somehow God's way of leading in the world. It's not. It is a theocracy. God is king. But we live in a democracy, and God wants us to honor and respect and live within that. I'm not speaking ill of that, but that's not automatically to presume. That is how God leads and how the church should always make decisions. I saw a sign yesterday. I didn't put it on the thing because I didn't want to potentially give you a clue of where this church was. I was driving with Jeanette. I have to look it up because I want to misquote this. So I, I paused to take a picture of this because I've been really trying to understand like Christian nationalism and its dangers in our country. But actually, no, I didn't see a I didn't post a I didn't take a picture of the church's name, so I don't want to you know dishonor them. But they had a sign in front of their church building. I won't show you because you can't see it anyways. But it says, "Greetings, praise Jesus." Underneath it, defend democracy. I'm like, you know, I watch that and read that, and I'm like, that, that's very patriotic in some ways, and there's nothing wrong with being patriotic and loving your country, respecting it, but you, do you see the subtle intent? And that's a church here in the Bay Area. That's like four miles from my house. Praise Jesus, defend democracy. It sounds a lot like the ten. If you begin to think about that, pray about see that subtle syncretism of assuming the way of the world, the way of the majority, the way that we decide to lead things is automatically the way of the Lord. And it's not always, we got to be careful on that. God's will is not always the most obvious to the majority. One last thing I'll say about Joshua, and we'll see this throughout the book. He's called in the very beginning, Moses' assistant. It's a very important title. He's called that throughout the other places we see him named in the Exodus through Deuteronomy. But it's important because this is in contrast. Notice Moses is called the servant of the Lord. Joshua is never called that until one place, at the very end of the book. Because the question that the reader is supposed to ask, and which we know because we have the whole book, as we're reading it though, is will Joshua actually serve the Lord? Will Joshua be someone who actually put God, puts God first? Which brings us to a very important question. We know, because we know the whole story of Joshua, that Joshua is someone who's actually following the Lord. But we never know, actually. I think it's important to think about that. The questions that you find yourself in, you have followed the Lord up until a certain point. But the question we have to ask of all of our lives, all of our hearts is, will we follow him? Will we, will we serve him until the very end? Because everything before, it doesn't mean that we dishonor that and dismiss it and just reject it, but the moment you are today does not determine where you are at the end. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we serve the Lord in the end? Actually, he asks the people of God at the very end, will you continue to serve the Lord as he brought us into this land? And if you know the rest of the story, you know that that's not very positive. But Joshua and Moses, just brief introductions, but as we're kind of introducing this book, we actually cannot end this introduction without talking about the main character because it's actually not Moses who's died. It's not Joshua who is dominating the rest of this book. It's actually Yahweh. Look at verses 1 to 2 again. I've already said this, but maybe we just make it very explicit. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said, who's talking in the very beginning? Who's the first voice? not Joshua, it is the Lord, it is Yahweh. The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, 
Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, the people of Israel. The main, main character of Joshua, the main character of the entire Bible is always God. Whether he is named explicitly like he is here or he's more behind the scenes, you don't ever see his name in the book of Esther, but God is moving in the book of Esther. Joshua is a book about Yahweh. There's a couple of things I want to say about Yahweh here. And this is maybe the first one, probably the most challenging, and we're going to come to this throughout the book. But maybe the question that maybe even hinders you from looking at this book right from the beginning, and you won't even want to read it from the beginning, is that does this seem like God is just an angry, wrathful, judgmental God? I mean, it seems like God is telling them to commit war and genocide. Isn't that contrary? A lot of people think about this, right? Isn't this completely contrary to what Jesus says about love and forgive your enemies? And we need to, we're need we going to answer this more in depth as we get throughout this book, but at least I want to talk about it from a high level. I mean, does this book actually condone war and genocide and the wiping out of people? It's a very important question. And this is actually where a lot of people get this misunderstanding that the God of the Old Testament is just a God of anger and the God of the New Testament is God of love. No, God in the Old Testament is full of righteous anger and full of grace. Just like God in the New Testament is full of anger, righteous anger, and full of grace. It is true of both. God is consistent, old, and new. He's not contradicting himself here. So why does he seem like he's sending them to war against the Canaanites? And how do we reconcile this? What will we know about God's character? Is God different? No. But how do we bring it all together? First, I want just a couple key things just maybe to help you begin to think about this. You have to think about why the Canaanites. Because throughout the Old Testament, you see God does not uniquely tell them to just go wipe everyone out who's God's against God. Why specifically the Canaanites? And if you look very carefully at Leviticus chapter 18, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we'll look at those specifically, but they become completely morally corrupt. They are the people on the face of the earth that are regularly condoning and practicing child sacrifice. They're the people who God has given generations of time of patience to. And God now, his patience is full and his judgment is about to come. Now, we have to be careful here, right? This is a unique moment. This is, remember, they're entering into the land and they're seeing these strong people with advanced weaponry, strong walls. They're seeing them as more successful than themselves. And God is saying, I want you to be careful because there's going to be temptation when you enter that land. And so uniquely, God is looking at the Canaanites, because not only are they going to be tempting to the Israelites, God has been patient with them. They are the people on earth that God is going to actually carry out his judgment upon, uniquely. So he's not saying, Israelites, you just go wage war against every single person out there. He's going to call them to uniquely go at this particular time for his purposes, and uniquely because of who they are. God is not condoning all human war and violence. This is a unique act of divine justice against people whose time has actually come. He's not cheering for Israel versus Canaan because of some kind of ethnic priority. Obviously, you can see, because this is not universal, it's not absolute, that God actually welcomes Canaanites. He wants Canaanites to turn to him, but most of them do not. That's why you see a glimpse of it once. We'll see it when we look at the chapter 2 with Rahab. You see it in chapter 8 and 9 with the Gibeonites, the Canaanites who turn to Yahweh. They also don't commit mass murder. 
in genocide. Although some people assume that the wording and phrases, you know, kind of devote them all to the ban. That's what the phrase you'll see throughout this book. You'll see that this is mostly military hyperbole. They're attacking military outposts, and the devoting all of them to the ban means a hyperbolic militaristic language because you're going to see that there are other Canaanites that continue to live. So he's not calling them to wipe out every single one of them. He's uniquely calling them to do war with the military outposts. Another thing to keep in mind as we'll look at throughout this book, this is a very unique moment. God does not condone all wars that Israel gets into. He's against a lot of the wars that he gets into. But primarily, what God wants his people to do is to bring peace and be a blessing. You read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 20. So when you read Joshua and you're going into the land and waging war against the Canaanites, this is not some kind of descriptive or prescriptive way to say, well, Christians today need to find God's enemies and wage war externally. This is a unique moment where God's judgment is being carried out through his people. It's a unique moment in time. I want to talk more about that idea of violence and war as we go throughout this book, because I know it's a, something that's of a stumbling block for many people today. Most importantly, when you look at Yahweh, you have to see this is a God who is a promise-keeping God. Throughout this book, the land is mentioned so many times. And the land is important because, not because of the physical space it's in and of itself, but because we see that this is a way for God to express his promise-keeping nature. You go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, and then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord and who had appeared to him. He, he made this explicit promise to Isaac, to Jacob. He made this promise and kept his promise to his people when they were enslaved in Egypt. He continues to keep this promise. He does not forget about it. He's not saying, well, they forgot about it 400 years ago by now. Well, I don't need to do anything about this. No, he's a promise-keeping God. Slavery can't keep him from keeping this promise. His own people and their sin and rebellion doesn't keep him from keeping his promise. The enemies that seem so strong with strong walls, they don't stop God from keeping his promise. God is consistently seen throughout this book as a promise-keeping God. The land shows that God is a gracious, promise-keeping God. The land actually was a gift, kind of on loan to Israel. It's not actually theirs, it's God's. It's a gracious gift. That's why at the end of the book, I don't know if any of you took me up on my, my challenge last week, if you want to prepare yourself for this book, read the entire book in a sitting. Maybe after chapter 20 to the end of the book, you kind of, how many of you who did that, you just skimmed it? Anyone want to edit that? Kevin, Rob, you guys were the honest people. I love you guys. That's what you're leaders in our church. You're honest you, like, we get to the end of that book and you're like, I, I cannot sit here and just read all of these names, right? And we'll, 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 we won't go like you know, 20 weeks on list of names for the sermon series, I promise you. But we will look at the names. Because you know what that is? You think about this. Let me put it in this perspective. What if your family member was like you're one of the first settlers of San Francisco? And they owned land in San Francisco. And they passed it on to their children. And then their children. And then another generation. Now it's to yours. And let's just say your parents pass away. 
And you can trace all the way back. You were, your family was the first family to settle in San Francisco. Would you want to look at those documents to see what land you own? Would you want to make sure that was passed down correctly, legally, accurately? Yes! Because you would that, think about what that meant for generations, not for you. When you look at Joshua at the end of this book, that's the same feeling. God kept his promise down to the family, down to the children, down to the generation. That promise to Abraham is being carried out specifically, not just generally, ah, I promised you this. No, he is making sure his people are taken care of. And as Christians today, we see we're not locked into a physical piece of land on the earth because the whole earth is the Lord's. But we are promised time and time again Throughout the Old Testament, we'll see it in Joshua. Throughout the New Testament, we have so many prom- promises. Promises. And it's trusting these promises in the face of external threats that's the challenge throughout history until God returns. What kind of enemies, what kind of challenges, what kind of threats on the outside, what kind of threats are in the inside? And will we trust God? And this sends us not only to the, into the depths of this book, this shoots us backwards to the beginning of creation all the way to the end. And I want you to see it like this, right? Do you realize from the very beginning of the, the creation of humanity, the relationship we had with God was always based upon trust? Trust in his promise. That's why Satan's very first question, one of the first questions he tempted humanity and tempted us by nature of being in Adam and Eve with, is did God really say? And maybe that's the challenge that Joshua is going to challenge you with. As you look at God fulfilling his promises, maybe you're looking at your own life today and you're wondering, did God really say that? Did God really send Jesus? I mean, I, I know this from Sunday school. I know this from sitting in church sermons. But maybe the question in your heart, in your mind, that you're going to be, pressed upon in this book is, did God really say? Did God really send Jesus? Did God really raise him from the dead? Did Jesus really give us his Holy Spirit? Did Jesus really promise and keep his, is he really here in, in his Holy Spirit with us to the end of the age? Friends, Joshua, more than the book about Joshua, more than a book about Moses, is about a God whose love never fails. I pray you would see him and come to him and trust in him as we look at this book. Would you pray briefly with me for a moment? Father, may your spirit help us to truly see your character. Help us to see that you are a promise-keeping God, that your word is true, that your word never fails and never returns void. You cannot lie. And so with all of the doubt that plays in our hearts, did you really say, I pray that your word, that your spirit would help us to trust in you. I pray that that'll be true right now, my friends, who are trusting in you for personal matters, for work matters, for school matters, how they would trust that you 
love them. You care about them. You want what's best for them. That you truly did die for their sins and rise to give them life as we intend, you intended for us to live. Help us to see your word as true. Amen.